on this Trinity Sunday. Both readings come from the lectionary. The sermon will really focus mainly on that first reading you heard from Bill from Isaiah chapter 6. But our second reading, of course, the themes are quite resonant. The same, some of the same themes are quite resonant as well. Hear God's word from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where were you on December 7th, 1941? The Japanese attack of Pearl Harbor. And and if you were there, if you were alive, can you remember how you felt? Where were you on April 4th, 1968, the assassination of MLK? And can you remember how you felt? Where were you on September 11th, 2001? Can you remember how you felt? Where were you on March 13th, 2020, as something of the entire world shut down? And do you remember how you felt? In the year King Uzziah died. That's how Isaiah chapter 6 began. Uzziah had ruled Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, for 52 years. And although his pride got the better of him towards the end, his 52 years were ultimately known for the ways he fostered economic growth, military growth, and overall sense of, of stability and strength. In the year that some measure of the foundation of our life, our family, our church, our nation, shook, cracked, broke, gave way, died. In the year King Uzziah died. That's the setting for the scripture this morning. And what does Isaiah 6 say about that kind of year? Everything fell apart. All was lost, disorienting. Surely some of that was there, but Isaiah records as the foremost experience in this year, King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord seated high and lofty upon his throne, stable and situated amidst 
all that was very much suddenly not. I wonder how many of you have been to the Redwood National Forest. I have not yet, but I was reading not, not long ago uh, about a tree in a remote part of that forest named Hyperion. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's, it's a roughly 600-year-old redwood that rises to 380 feet from, from its base, and at 1.6 million pounds, it is purported to be the largest tree in the world. People who've seen it live in this remote area, they're leery to give any details out of its whereabouts or give away the coordinates of just where to find it, lest tourists end up abusing it and hurting the root system and trampling kind of right over it. But if you, if you go and you, you stand before this tree, a human being is just overwhelmed by, by, by the vast 24-foot diameter. It is just so overwhelmingly there, firmly entrenched. And at the same time, you, you, you can look up, and, and most of the tree is, is simply not even visible or, or, or reachable. It is impossible to appreciate the height and, and the ways the branches go and the maze and the, uh, of branch and, and tree and foliage. And so you have this tree as at once so starkly visible and real, and then at the same time entirely beyond visible and and really incomprehensible as it floats above the tree line. This is the kind of encounter Isaiah has when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the year the foundation died. We read, Isaiah sees the hem of God's robe, and even that simple hem is large enough, we read, to fill the entire temple. It is an immediate presence. And yet at the same time, God towers with this mystery and holiness that is, that is beyond Isaiah's under, full understanding or vision. You have these seraphs, these angelic beings, and they're, they're singing, but there's also this shaking in the temple. There's smoke filling everything. God at once so near and also beyond. I've always appreciated Howard's Thurman ref, Thurman's reflection. There must always, there must be always remaining in every life, some place for the singing of angels, some place for that which in itself is breathless and beautiful, which is to say, some place, some way to recognize both the profound nearness of God and also the the breathless beauty of God. And, and what Isaiah six is pointing out is it's often in the year. That King Uzziah died. In the year the foundation cracked, broke, gave way. It is in those years that we, we see actually not less of God, but actually far, far more clearly God. How have you known the nearness of God this past year? And also, how have we known the breathless, the beautiful, the, the majesty of God? Have we, in fact, seen the Lord high and lifted, seated upon his throne? Not, not, not less this year, but actually more. 
And our passage makes clear one of the foremost signs that we've actually encountered, the living God who, who is in our midst, we find ourselves led into a space of confession. Woe is me. I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and, and I live a peop- among a people of unclean lips. I mean, the very first thing that becomes apparent to Isaiah when Isaiah lets his soul settle upon the majesty of, of, of God is how much of who he is is not at all worthy of, of, of that. How far he is from, from that beauty, that, that light. And you heard he, he speaks of his lips as unclean. It's, it's in keeping, really, with what Jesus would say many years later. It's what comes out of the mouth that makes a person unclean because those words betray, of course, what is here. And did you notice, Isaiah's confession is both about himself, I am a man of unclean lips, and the people of his land. I live among a people of unclean lips. He is at once acutely aware both of his individual sin and the corporate sin as well. Sometimes we, as the church, we're prone to focus on one or the other as the real issue. We need to deal with with personal individual sins, personal individual hearts. No, we need to deal with societal, structural sin, our collective wrong and sin. Isaiah's encounter with God draws him to see both. I see and confess my sin. I see and confess our collective sin. How I talk, how we talk. How I have failed, how we have failed. And so maybe the question is is not only have we seen God more clearly this past year, but precisely because we have seen God more clearly, in what ways have we seen ourselves more clearly? Of course, it's a terrifying thing to think that that a real encounter with God would involve some level of of being exposed, of feeling exposed. Especially, I think, in our day and age. I recently came across uh, a story that uh, now it's a year too old, but it's, it's about this uh, woman who, um, uh, when she was 30 years old, again, a couple years ago, uh, actually in Richmond, Virginia, though I didn't realize this story was happening while I was there, um, got one uh, of her best friends and bandmates in their punk rock band had sent should make sure is that no okay i was making sure it wasn't back here because i was like i'll go deal with that one um uh this this woman in richmond virginia she got one of her her best friends and bandmates in in their kind of punk rock band that they were doing together uh well he sent out some sexually explicit photos to some people and and so this woman in the band she called him out and, and 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 disowned him no 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 that's not right well, the post, you know, this, this, this post work, calling this guy out, uh, this post online, the guy ended up leaving the band and, and, and really actually disappearing from the punk scene altogether. Um, later, the woman learned this, this guy was fired from his, his job. He was kicked out of his apartment. He really had to move to a new city to, to figure things out, and that wasn't going great, but that's where it was. And, and for her part, she never spoke to him again. Well, a little later, uh, it came out that, that once in high school, this same woman had, had cyber-bullied uh, another girl, and, and someone posted it, called her out on it. And she actually became the object of this nationwide sort of group hate 
online. She was banned from, from the punk scene. Uh, she didn't leave her house for a few weeks. She started to lose some, some friends. Uh, in the interview, she talked of being scared and, and traumatized and alone in this period. She, she said, it's entirely my life, speaking of the, the, the music and the band, like, this is everything to me, and it's, it's all just, like, done and over. And, and the guy who, who called her out about the, the cyberbullying, um, who, who doesn't uh, know her, he, he, he told the interviewers he had no regret or remorse. Instead, calling this woman out, he said, quote, gave him a rush of pleasure. This article, it concludes with this observation. It says, you know, in this small story, we see something of the maladies that shape our brutal cultural moment. You see how zealotry is often fueled by people working out their psychological wounds. You see that when denunciation is done through social media, you can destroy a people without even knowing them. There's no personal connection to allow for apology and forgiveness. Perhaps it goes without saying, there has been a lot of zealotry these recent days in a host of ways I'm sure we can all name. At best, some measure of zealotry is, is, is a passion, we hope, for, 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 for holiness, for goodness, for justice to, to win the day, for goodness to prevail over evil. And, and yet, this kind of zealous desire, this purity for our cause, it can and does start to prove quite dangerous as we see. It can easily default to solving the problem by banishing them, destroying them, ruining them, engulfing them in a flame of the fire of judgment. And the effect, we all know it, the effect is that more and more people grow fearful of ever being exposed for any words or actions they've ever said or yet might say. People start to hide. The cost is too high. The stones that will be thrown will be too hard and too many too severe if anyone finds out. Woe is me, Isaiah cries out in that exposed, fearful place of moral failure before a holy God. Then, one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed from you. And your sin is blotted out. This God also purifies with fire. But rather than casting uh, Isaiah aside or engulfing him with a uh, consuming fire. A seraph emissary of God actually comes toward Isaiah, presses right into and against the very place of sin with live coal. A fire that singes the sin, blots the sin out. A fire that does not destroy, but forgives. And is not that the good news of Jesus Christ? Eventually it would not be a seraph, but God's very self in Jesus Christ who would move in our direction. Rather than, than run from the sinner, the God runs towards the sinner. Rather than banish the sinner, Jesus hangs condemned as one himself. Rather than ostracize the sinner, Jesus eats with, talks with, teaches to, ultimately dies 
for the ones who are wrong. We stand this day utterly exposed, fully exposed, just as we are and just as we have been. And in Jesus Christ, what we discover is that we stand this way under this great canopy of forgiveness. In our day and age of easy judgment and much stone-throwing, in our day and age where, where the fear of being found out and exposed keeps getting ratcheted up, in our day and age where so many families, friendships, and households have known division, Tell me there are not at this very moment millions who would know just about anything to know the coordinates of that particular tree. To stand under the foliage of that particular gift. Alongside one another. Here I am. Send me. Isaiah eventually responds. He recognizes this encounter with God is calling him to go forth and show forth God's same way with him in the world. And so what if in the year that King Uzziah died and the foundation cracked and it shook, what if in that year of all years the forgiving love of Jesus Christ showered afresh upon the people of God? And what if those same people then, having received the fresh nearness of this God, responded, now, now send us. Send us right into the thick of all of the judgment and the finger pointing in our own families, in our own church, in our own society. And we will risk the same forgiving love that we have first received. What if the church in our day and age, in the year King Uzziah died, became known as emissaries of healing coal, one to another, that all might know the sacred gift, the freedom of life lived under that canopy of forgiveness? Amen.